Hello, this is international football commentator Derek Ray, and you're listening to the Ranks FC podcast. squad and welcome to ranks fc it's your favorite football podcast back for another week my name is jack collins and i will be your host today and i'm joined by the one and only rank god mr samtai how you doing mate hello mate yes i'm very well thank you i'm very well i am excited ahead of the final week of the transfer window we're sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon and we're seeing reports that Arna Danjuma has done a bit of a runner on Everton, might be getting hijacked for Tottenham. I mean, it's getting seriously exciting. Loads of clubs need to do loads of stuff. I think we're in store for a hell of a yeah, week. Yeah, it's going to be a grandstand finish, to use a cliche. Mm. Uh, it was sad to say that Dean Jones is a late injury dropout today. He's uh, He's been a late call-up, but... We have an excellent super sub in the works as well. Four parts two and three. We're going to be joined by TIFO Football's John McKenzie to provide us with his insight and analysis on our main ranking and beyond. And the main ranking today, Sam, is a fun one. We're talking about some under-the-radar deals that maybe people have, have kind of let slip by them but might well have an impact in the second half of the Premier League season. Yeah, under the radar and yet still pretty damn expensive. Yeah. That's just kind of the world we live in right now, isn't it? It's a very strange one. Um, look, I was trying to figure out what the ranking should be this week and you know, maybe not having Dean definitely shapes that a little bit. But I think we all know that next week we're going to gather around the microphones and we're going to pick the top five January deals. This month we've talked about what's already been done. We've talked about which clubs need to get a move on. We've talked about which players really need to find a way out. So we're just in that middle period. So I thought, who haven't we talked about? And I found five Premier League deals, all for £15 million or more that we've barely touched. And I think they're players that a lot of our listeners will have never seen kick a ball. So that's what we're here for, to help explain those players, to help talk about them and 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 to shine a light on some of those. So I think it's going to be a lot yes, of fun. it is. And can't wait to have John join us, a long-term friend of the pod. He's always brilliant on here. Um, right, before we do that, though, it's time for a quick Things We Love. And Sam, I know yours focuses on what's been a very, very busy, but really enjoyable week for us. Oh, I can't go anywhere else. Things We Love. I'll tell you what I love. The reception that our documentary on Athletic Club has received. It's been wonderful, hasn't it? It's been a long time coming, obviously. Went to Bilbao in October and got all the footage. And really, it probably would have been out in end of yeah. November had it not been for a little thing called the FIFA World Cup, which, of course, at that point, everybody's attention turns to it. So we put it on ice for a little bit and we finally released it. It came out on Friday. Yes, we put it in front of a lot of people and we asked for a, a share or two, but everybody has been more than happy to do it and everybody has said such nice things about it. It, it makes you feel proud of the work that you've done. Um, it was a great video to film. Thanks to New Balance and thanks to Athletic Club for giving us the access and giving us the opportunities. And thanks to Thomas and her man for being such a brilliant host. Thanks to Eden for, for filming the whole thing and putting it together. 
And thanks to you, mate, for you know taking editorial control and producing something really, really good. Yeah, I'm very, very proud of it. I think it's you know one of those things we look back on and be like, this is really, really nice. And I got some lovely messages. I have an uncle who lives in Barcelona, and he messaged me just to say, mate, I loved your documentary, so I showed it to my neighbour who's from Bilbao, and he sent it to his whole family in the Basque country. And those are the kind of ones you're like, oh, that's really nice. Mm. Um, if you haven't seen it, the link <laughs> is in the description to this podcast. We'd love you to go and take a look. It's about 15 minutes, so it's not going to gobble up too much of your day, but might be a nice one for a cup of tea or coffee on your lunch break. Yeah. So that might be one you could do today if you fancy it. It's been lots of fun. We've got an interview with Ander Herrera in there. We we did an interview, various interviews um, with members of the Athletic Club women's team, the captain, Garathi, uh, the manager, uh, goalkeeper, Amaya Pena. We had a, a really wonderful time. So it, there's lots in there to digest and it, very, very much fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun and, and reading some of the comments as well. One really stuck out to me, you know, not, not to give too much away, but I'm sure you guys all know that Athletic does feel like a family club and it's all about, you know, doing your best for your community and your neighbours and things like that. And the best comment I saw was on Reddit and it just said, it's amazing how many of the people I recognise in this documentary. Of course, and that's so fitting, isn't it? Because of the values that the club drives and, and the values that the club stands by. When we went out into the crowd and on the road up to the new San Mames, and we filmed those fans gearing up for the day and gearing up for the big match against Atletico, all the people sat at home who support Athletic can pick out all the different faces. It's just perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I want to talk about two things very quickly before we move on to our main segment in my things we love this week. Uh, one of them comes from the Bundesliga, which returned this weekend to an absolute cacophony of goals. There were 41 goals across <laughs> nine games in the Bundesliga, an average of over 4.5 goals a game. And there were some really, really good matchups. Dortmund doing perhaps the most Dortmund performance of all time uh, with, with their 4-3 th win uh, over Augsburg. Um, but I think one of my, my favourite things for a while now, actually, but we saw it kind of back again this weekend, was Chabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen, who were on a stunning run of form, five wins in a row. And for 70 minutes of their game against Borussia Mönchengladbach, they were absolutely sensational. It was fluid, one-two-touch football. They were moving Gladbach around like they weren't even there. They're Gladbach chasing shadows for long periods of this game. Now, in true Bundesliga style and in very much Leverkusen style, they nearly managed to throw things away from a, a, a position of winning 3-0, pegged back 2-3-2. Uh, and they got yeah, away. This is the Bundesliga, though, isn't it, Jack? I mean, you can have all the control you want for 75 minutes, but something somewhere is, is going to go wrong. This is very on brand for Germany. Uh, but it was just another example. And, and look, people have maybe made more of the whole, oh, another Pep disciple doing Pep things. Um, I, I think that's maybe a little bit of a stretch for Xavi Alonso, much as he was excellent under Pep Guardiola at, at Bayern Munich. It did feel like one of those performances you were like, this is a team that have really started to gel post the International World Cup break. And when we're when you're looking at, at this side and, and what they bring and the talent on the table, the time that Chabilonzo should be afforded and, and looks like he's going to get, it is really, really exciting. And they're playing some really, really intricate, nice football. Uh, and I've found them an absolute joy to watch at the weekend. So I wanted to throw Bayer Leverkusen into the mix. There's lots of nice things going on there. The other team that I wanted to talk about briefly 
was Atalanta, who drew three all with Juventus in a game that was pretty highly charged. Obviously, Juventus, given that 15-point deduction, they're appealing it. We wait to see what happens with the outcome of that one. But for now, Juventus sliding down the Serie A table. And they played Atalanta, who've been in great form, in a really entertaining 3 all draw, in which Adamola Lookman uh, had an absolute stormer of a game once again. He's up to second in the Capo Cannoniere charts behind Victor Rossiman. It's all very, very exciting. But Atalanta generally, I think a lot of people at the start of this season looked at them all like, hmm, some sales, there's some big players missing now in, in, in this mix. Are they still the same team? And they didn't look so to begin the season. But their revival of late has been sensational. And since the World Cup, They've scored 20 goals in five games. <laughs> they are an absolute delight to watch. And look, maybe this is this is my things we love in many ways, just teams that are loads of fun to watch and, and things I love keeping an eye on across the weekends. But Atalanta are back, baby, and that makes me happy. So you're telling me that number one and number two in the Serie A top scorer stakes are both Nigerians. Yeah, I'm telling you that right now. Aussie men and Lookman. Wow. Nigeria doing well in Italy. Wow, that's that's awesome. And Atalanta, all those goals and those signings that they've made over the last 12 to 18 months that they've needed to kind of reload after key departures. You know, a lot of the, the success through the last five, six years anchored around Papu Gomez, around Josip Ilicic. They've had to move on from those players and they've had to recruit. And Cope Miners really stepping yeah. forward. Someone like Edison scoring absolute bangers. It's taken them a little while and it can knock you back, but it's nice to see some of these, some of this recruitment really starting to, to bear fruit and Scalvini at the back as say. well. Like there's a lot of players in this Atalanta team that I think people should be quite eager to take a look at where they can, because you'll be seeing them making 40, 50 million euro moves in the this future. Is it. I mean, Jeremy Boger and Adamola Lookman, two players who were, you know, once touted as stars in the Premier League. It didn't quite work out for either of them. And they've both gone on to be absolutely shining. Uh, at, at this point. And, and look, Rasmus Hoyland up top has kind of replaced the old guard of, of Dude Van Zapata and Luis Muriel. Now, obviously, they're both still kind of kicking around the score. We don't know how much longer for, for Zapata, but Muriel's still coming off the bench. But a lot of the old guard that it was based around ha have moved on. And, and there's this kind of young core coming through, even Jerkin Mailer, who has really struggled, I think, to represent that kind of form he's had on the international stage at club level starting to step up into this team and, and get going now and and it makes me really happy so yeah just wanted to shout out Atalanta they've been loads of fun uh, and they're great to watch in pretty much all aspects so yeah Gasparini re-sprinkling Bergamo with magic once again it's great to see and um, with that I think we should probably move on to our main ranking bring the wonderful John McKenzie in so we'll see you after the break Welcome back to Rags FC, where I'm absolutely delighted to say that we are joined once again by a very good friend of this podcast, Mr. John McKenzie of TIFO Football. John, thank you so much for coming back on and joining us today. Guys, it's always an absolute pleasure to both hang out with you guys, but also talk football with you. So I'm really looking forward to it. No, we are too. And and this is a, an interesting ranking and I, I'm really excited to get your takes on some of these. I've realized during kind of looking at the background of this, Sam, that you have done a ranking not only of deals that might have gone slightly under the radar coming towards the Premier League, but also the fact that they're all 
under 21 as well so it's quite a nice youth element as well to to this signing list and i'm excited to see what you've got in store for us yeah i mean the fact that they're all so young and some of them are so obscure it made it a little bit more difficult when we needed to put up the bat signal and recruit an emergency guest because you know if we were talking about narratives of the premier league or whatever then getting someone to step in for dean wouldn't have been too difficult but my shortlist of people that could really come and talk to us about these players was pretty damn short uh so very thankful to john for stepping in but yeah we're going to cover some some slightly strange ground here i think even even for us we're going to go uh, across the world over to south america a couple of times to burkina faso back into europe and over to scandinavia it's going to be a lot of fun really looking forward to it really looking forward to it so let's get into the mix here sam shall we all right so i have ranked these guys very simply in price order going from lowest to highest and it says a lot about the premier league's pulling power that at 5 and the lowest price is John Duran moving from Chicago Fire to Aston Villa for an initial about 15 million, but it could it could end up rising to 20. This is what Premier League clubs can now pay for a player who has one or two seasons in America under their belt. I mean, the prices are just going up and up. And this was a bit of a bombshell, this one, wasn't it? I mean, okay, there were a couple of fleeting rumours here and there maybe a couple of months ago, but as is the case with a lot of Aston Villa transfers at the moment, Isola went from zero to 100 in the blink of an eye. John Duran was suddenly an Aston Villa player subject to a medical and some paperwork. It kind of happened with Danny Ings the other way, didn't it? With West Ham, it was a busy week and Duran came mm. in the other side. So the first thing I'd like to say about this is he, he was unveiled officially on Monday. There was a lovely little video. If you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. They sat him in the stadium they put a they put the big screen on in the Holt end and they played a video that had been sent in by fellow Colombian Juan Pablo Angel, who played for Villa 15, 10 years ago, whatever it was, was a huge success at Villa Park as a striker and would have been a player that Duran would have been watching when he was growing up. Angel basically said, welcome to your new home. These fans gave me everything. If you put the effort in, you're going to be a great success and you're going to love it. And at the end of the uh, video, Duran was crying. He was weeping. He was wiping away a couple of little tears. It was so cute. So he's a big softy off the pitch, John Duran, but on the pitch, he is not. He is absolute brute force. He's a real powerhouse of a player. I've only seen him in an MLS context, but he bullied those defenders, literally shoving them around. And he has a lot of speed as well to match that strength. In some ways, I might liken him to a different form of Villa striker, he has bits of Benteke in him. The shooting technique is very similar and the way he literally picks defenders up and just shoves them around is quite the same too. I've seen other comparisons to say that the size and speed combo is a bit Tammy Abraham because he is very tall, very strong and very fast. So maybe if Benteke and Tammy Abraham had a baby and he was Colombian, then this is what we would be looking at. The one negative I've got for him, very, very one-footed. Super one-footed, only uses his left. Of all the shots he took last season in MLS, just three on his right foot. You can't get away with that. Stepping up to a new level is going to be tough. Changing continents, changing lifestyles and cultures is going to be tough. And defenders know they can pigeonhole you and put you on one foot. That will be adding to the problem. So he has got a lot of adapting to do. And there's one part of his game in particular that needs to be worked on. But all in all, this is a very exciting young prospect. Yeah, I mean, John, we're looking at a player here who's come in. He's obviously very young. He's had 
really a, a maiden season in MLS, really as as the kind of latest we can draw on from him. In that season, 27 appearances for Chicago Fire, uh, eight goals and five assists, which isn't dreadful considering the Fire only won 10 times last season across their entire regular season in MLS. And again, sort of drifted towards the bottom of that table. It's a big risk. And I, I think there's a lot of people asking the question, you know, that... John Duran has come in here and Danny Ings has left the club. And there's maybe this expectation that someone is stepping up to a breach straight away. I'm not completely convinced that this is the case with this one. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but all of the players that we've talked about here are making big step ups. Um, there's clearly something going on in the market, which is is which is encouraging uh, teams to to maybe dip into interesting markets. No doubt, some of that has to do with Brexit. We are going to talk about, uh, for example, a Brazilian player at some point, and uh, those those markets are much more open, I think, than they were in the past. Um, so this is what's going to be fascinating about all of these players. It's going to be how are the, the the league effects that that you know these are players who are performing well in other leagues that are maybe a step down from the Premier League? What are we going to see from them when they when they actually step up onto onto that big stage of of the Premier League? And it's it's hard to know. I'm I'm not employed as a scout for for anyone. I'm not a, I'm not a player ID kind of guy. Um, in terms of Duran. I mean, Sam's the person to talk to about the way that Villa are playing at the moment under Unai Emery. But it did sort of strike me as, as a bit of an, an interesting kind of profile for, for Aston Villa, given that what we saw from Unai Emery's Villarreal, at least, was was quite different in terms of the, the sort of strikers. A lot of non-standard strikers, I thought, mm. um, for, for Unai Emery's Villarreal. This seems to be like the other, the, the return that we're seeing in the Premier League as well to this sort of traditional nine box presence players who are going to uh, pull back lines deep, going to create space in behind. Uh, but it does seem sort of slightly different profile maybe to what we've seen from Unai Emery in his most recent clubs as well. So there's a lot about this that that I'm sort of interested to see how it goes. I don't have much more insight than this because I've only caught a couple of uh, a couple of games of of John Duran this morning on Y Scout in doing my due diligence. So be interested to hear what you guys think of this. Sam, in terms of how this kind of matches up, I think it's interesting. And we've talked a little bit on the podcast before about the fact that Emery plays a version of a 4-4-2 right he likes two up top that are, are going to stretch are going to get in behind as John mentions there we saw players being used in in, in these areas Alex Baena at Villarreal who has obviously kind of dropped further deeper in, into the system in the new Setien regime also the likes of Arna Danjuma who appears to be on the move as well Nicholas Jackson these are players and 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 in the fact that he's got rid of Danny Ings, while seeming to keep faith with, with Ollie Watkins, you, you can kind of see the the type of striker that Emery wants to use. Uh, is this going to be a major change for Duran? Because obviously we've seen the Fire do play with a sort of 4-2-3-1, but their central midfielder, or the 10, has been very, very high up over the course of the last season. Well, yeah, I think he's played mostly for the Fire. I mean, I'm not, I haven't seen too much of him there. Um and actually, it was Owen Murray. Be uh, rank, ranks is Owen Murray that had put together a really nice thread on this. You know, very often Duran is playing as a lone striker, so he's probably going to step into a scenario here where he is not playing as a lone striker. He is going to play as part of a two because Emery's four four two or or brand of it. 
basically always gives you a partner up front. I think for him, it's a case of, you know, Villa have been really strong in transition under Emery, really strong at um, drawing the press, the opposition press onto the defence, then playing through it using Camera and Emi Martinez as central points. And then through Douglas Louise, they can just fly through the gears very, very quickly. Hmm. I think to play this system, you need athleticism as the striker because it starts to move so fast. And Danny Ings, for all his qualities, has looked physically a bit lost under Unai Emery. He's looked unable to really sink into this team. So Duran's physical qualities are an immediate plus point here in terms of playing in transition, playing in open spaces and going very quickly from 0 to 60. And then, of course, it's a case of, well, yes, he can also score goals. He's got an okay shooting technique. He's got a good nose for the right spaces. He's overall a very promising prospect. I think he'll like the fact that he gets to play with a partner early doors. I mean, there's probably nothing more daunting than going holding the line up front in the Premier League, having put together a couple of seasons in South America and you're not even 21. It's nice, really, that he gets to go and probably play alongside Ollie Watkins. So I think slowly, slowly does it. Seems filtered in over the course of the second half of the season. No major rush. Would not be surprised if Villa also loan in a more veteran presence to replace things fully and play alongside Watkins and see what happens there. We know Bailey plays a little bit up there as well as well. So there's a lot of different options. I think they'll take it easy with Duran, but I'm very excited to see how this one pans out because I do see a physical profile here that can be a huge mismatch for a lot of players. This kind of striker doesn't come around that that often. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting point. And and I think when you're looking at this, this is the question that remains, right? And I mean, I suppose we're not going to answer it right now, but the question is, Villa had been linked with a move for Arnaud Danjuma. Emery basically ruled that out earlier in the transfer window. And there was a lot of us thinking, mm. Mm, okay, it looks like Villa needed another body in there, if you will, if they were going to get Duran in slowly and, and kind of drip feed him into this setup. The fact that Villa have walked away, for whatever reason, from that Danjuma interest, John, suggest to me that maybe they have a, a more immediate path than I originally had thought. Although, you know, we, we are talking about this with a week left of the window and things can obviously change at any point. Yeah, I think Dan Juma is clearly a different profile to John Duran, um, which that I think raises questions. I mean, you could argue that Emery knows Dan Juma and therefore um, you read read something into the maybe the offside, off-pitch off side of things a little bit there. But clearly what's happened here is that there has been that desire for maybe a, a, a more physical profile of player uh, for whatever reason. Um, no doubt Emery's come in, taken over a villa who were, despite the fact they have a good squad, you know, down towards the bottom end of the of the table. Uh, maybe he's decided that what he needs to, to be able to get a little bit more upside in, in some of the more sloggy games that he's been involved with is is a player who, who he can play with a bit more of a physical profile against um, centre-backs in the Premier League. Um, that's obviously speculation, but there's clearly been some, some kind of thought around why they've gone for this profile rather than something more of a Dan Juma type profile, which, as we've said, Villarreal were using when Emery was there. Yeah, I mean, Emery has said something to the effect of Dan Juba is not the, the profile that I'm targeting. It was something along those lines. So he's not targeting Dan Juma, who's a makeshift striker in a two, but he is targeting a pure number nine. So I think it tells you what he's got planned. And I think maybe out underlines some of the differences between La Liga and the Premier League and Unai Emery's understanding of what you need in different scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Sam, let's move on to number four. All right, Victor Christiansen. 
Copenhagen to Leicester City for about seventeen million pounds. I'm actually a bit shocked by this one, um, but I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that this is a deal that Premier League side has done because I do really like Christensen. His first port of call is to avoid the Leicester fullback injury curse. They have had so many problems in this area; it is absolutely astounding. Do you remember Jack? A man named Ricardo Pereira. Yeah, once one, one of my favourite fullbacks, mm. and now uh, sadly non-existent. Yes, I know. Real shame. And he just hasn't really been around for a long time. And John, you and I are both old enough to remember a man named James Justin, who is also nowhere to be seen due to a similar injury issue. So fair enough, Lester. Probably got probably got to do something here. And they've signed Christensen. I think a lot of people will have no idea who this player is. Denmark still very much untouched by a lot. I happen to have seen about five or six Copenhagen games this season. Helps that they were drawn with City in the Champions League. Um, so I can tell you a bit about him. And I do really like him. He is, as I would put, a full-blooded left-back. Full-blooded. He plays at a high intensity. He's very positive. He's very determined in all of his actions. I've always liked the fact that he can progress the ball with carrying and he can pass it forward too. And he tends to show up pretty well in those kind of metrics. And when you watch him, you can see that he's pretty comfortable receiving and shifting the ball around. He does seem to do quite a lot of things at 100 miles an hour. So like all of his crosses are whipped across the face of goal. Everything he does is a sprint. Um, when he tracks back a man, he sometimes overcommits and he does a lot of slide tackling. Um, there's some slight issues in there. But ultimately, I like the fact that quite a lot of heart comes through in a lot of his performances. And if you're standing in in the stands at the King Power Stadium and you're watching a Leicester team that has really struggled this season for lots of different reasons, Christensen is the kind of player who puts the kind of effort in that will make you stand up and applaud. And he'll really endear himself to the fans because he'll give you everything. And even in the Champions League, so we'll move the domestic games that I've seen, in the Champions League, he, he has stood out. Jack, you and I were doing some live score team of the weeks in the group stage and I was sort of maybe here he was sort of third on my list for left backs on a couple of weeks you know he's actually really really strong now I am surprised this transfer has actually happened because this isn't usually the deal with Leicester strike Christensen would usually go to Belgium or Portugal but as we've seen and there is a bit of a trend here Premier League teams are starting to cut out the middleman and I don't just mean Brighton I mean others as well. Datro Fafana to Chelsea, Christensen to Leicester. There's a bit of a trend happening. Yeah, I think this is an interesting one, and I think obviously that's something we're gonna we're gonna come back to as a kind of topic, time and time again over the course of this podcast. The reason that these transfers maybe have gone under the radar is because they're coming from less heralded destinations than perhaps the Premier League would usually use. This feels like one of those really sensible deals, John, from from kind of where I'm sitting. Not necessarily all in in terms of profile, but actually just in, in, in case the fact that Leicester feel like they're desperately in need of bodies. Luke Thomas is basically the last man standing at left back for Leicester City. We've seen Michael Brighton come on for him at the end of games in a sort of kind of quasi wing back role. We saw Casey McAteer, who's been a midfielder at youth level for Leicester, come on and, and play there in the cup. So just from a pure Leicester look a little bit wrecked across the course of their injury list, left back felt like a priority position and, and they've got one through the door. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Sam on this. I've I managed to catch a fair bit of Christensen 
in the Champions League this season. As you say, they were in quite a fun group uh, with Man City. They had Dortmund as well, who I'll often catch in the Champions League uh, stages. And I think it was Sevilla, was it Sevilla yep. in their group as well? Um, and yeah, put up a really good showing in those in those games. And I think that's you know that's probably as much a reason as any as why Leicester have gone for him because, as you've said, he has been playing in Denmark, but he has. Um, he ha- he's come through their system at Copenhagen, but he does have that um, that I guess almost like a portfolio now of of big teams that he's come uh, onto the pitch and played against uh, on a number of occasions and and done well. Um, in terms of what to expect, yeah, very very um, standard sort of left back. I thought, um, as Sam said, like he he is going to make long busting runs in wide areas. He's he's he is able to underlap. He did a fair bit of underlapping, uh, but. As Sam says, everything at 100 miles an hour is a very uh, sort of committed kind of player and that extends to his defensive aspects as well, which I think um, sometimes, uh, you know, he's a very proactive defender and uh, at times when you get into those situations when you are isolated against an attacking player and you jump in, uh, you can leave a lot of space behind you and and I'm sure that will will be an issue. But I don't think that um, he'll be expected to be a super aggressive attacking player under under Brendan Rodgers as things stand. So um, he'll definitely have, have the coverage there. But these are the sorts of smart deals that I think we need to start expecting Premier League clubs to to make. Um, as, as we've said, like this is it's a big fee for a for a player who we we don't know much about um, as, as as a collective um, uh, sort of English fan base. But um, I think it's, what was it seventeen million yeah. that you said? Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the sorts of fees that are being handed around for players in more, um, uh, I, I guess at more consistent higher levels are just getting silly now. So this is where I think value is going to be found. And if you're a, a club like Leicester, we know that they have a lot of issues in terms of the finances. These are the sorts of gambles that you have to make because you can, you can take a look at a player who is playing in yeah, a relatively small league, but does have Champions League experience, and you can make a fairly smart guess that he's going to be at the level that you require. So, yeah, this is the sorts of things that we should be seeing more often, I think, in the Premier League. Yeah, seventeen yeah. million is a lot straight to a Scandinavian club. There, it's a lot, and the and the reason is very simple: it's because the Premier League club club have gone straight in for him. If this player goes to Belgium, uh, this fee is probably halved. The initial fee is probably halved. So the Premier League are trying to cut out the middleman. The smart ones are. What it actually means, really, is that these Scandinavian clubs, for example, are going to just receive more direct money. You know, they, they've been selling cheaper to other leagues first as the stepping stone team. And now Copenhagen get an entire £17 million for their team. The last player that they, they sold for good money, um, off the top of my head, is probably the centre-back, Victor Nelson. And he went to Turkey, and it probably wouldn't have been more than £8 million. We're talking about a different stratosphere financially for Scandinavian clubs. It's interesting because it gives you so many different knock-on effects here, not just for the Premier League, but for Scandinavian clubs. And then, by proxy, how the other the stepping stone clubs change their scouting as a result. I think I'm yeah. right in saying that this is the record for the Danish Super League, right? Got to be. I mean, it's got yeah. to be, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is it. This is it. And, and, and this kind of brave new world that, that's opening up. And it is interesting to see that kind of knock-on effect that teams like Brighton, and I would probably put Brentford into this category as well, have started to open up to the rest of the Premier League by people going, maybe we can 
actually do what they're doing. Maybe we can actually look at the methods that these clubs are using to run smart and become smarter ourselves. And for so long, we've seen clubs, not necessarily Leicester, I think that would be unfair, but we've seen clubs throw money at these situations. Yes, obviously, that's going to continue with the bigger clubs in the league in terms of what they have for financial firepower. But the rest of the league are getting smarter, dealing with these issues kind of head on. And I think that that's important. I mean, just one for Leicester fans, John, and, you know, we're talking about these kind of different elements. What's really impressed me in the Champions League is, is Christensen's one-on-one defending. You know, it has been very, very sharp down that side. Now, he's a little bit small, I would suggest, and given Leicester's issues with set pieces in the last couple of seasons, it's not going to address that concern, although their links with Harry Souter might might just do that for them. <laughs> but uh, I have I have been in, kind of impressed with, with how he's done down those flanks. And I, I think I'm right in saying that only only one side, and that's Bournemouth, have conceded more than Leicester in the Premier League so far this season. It'll be a, a little bit of welcome respite for that fan base because their goal scoring, whilst hasn't been great, hasn't been absolutely dreadful. It's the shambles at the other end that's led to them being embroiled in the mire here. Yeah, and as Sam said, they've been really, really unlucky with injuries. Like we mentioned Ricardo Pereira at the beginning of, of this section, and like it's, it's all well and good now looking back on Ricardo Pereira and saying, oh, do you all remember Ricardo Pereira? But at that point, he was arguably one of the best, arguably the best right back in, in the league. Like he was playing incre- at an incredible level yeah. and dropped off entirely because of that because of that injury. And they've had other players obviously coming in, uh, getting injured and, and just not hitting the same level when, when, they, when they've come back. So I, I think one of the things that they will take from, from Christensen is that he, I, I, don't know how, I don't know how much truth there is in this, but like when you watch him, he looks like a robust player. Um, he doesn't look like the sort of player who who is gonna who is gonna um, just take a hammering on his body. Um, you can tell that by the, just the, the, the fact that he's able to get up and down the pitch, as you said. Um, and I, one of the biggest things about uh, Premier League football these days is that the off ball stuff is as important as the on ball. Uh, you've mentioned one v one defending, but there's so much more as well that that Leicester will want to get out of a, a player like Christensen and the ability to have a, a fullback who is able to make jumps forward, uh, who is able to track back in defensive transition. Uh, these are all going to be really, really important. And again, one of the things I've actually noticed from doing a bit of scouting work this morning looking at some of these players is is how many of them are willing even the attacking players to make those those runs back to help out defensively this is the new standard that we have in the premier league that you, you have to be able to control the game in every phase of play in and out of possession and it doesn't surprise me at all that a player like christensen who yes as we've said does have like raw edges um but he at the same time he is going to he, he puts in that base level amount of work that you expect from a player like this. Uh, and then everything on top of that is just honing that player to, to get them to the level that you want them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Let's move on to number three, Sam. Number three is Danilo. Comes in and at a shade higher, 18 million. Palmeiras to Forest. I was kind of working on the impression pre-World Cup that this player might end up at somewhere like Arsenal. I think we'd had conversations with Dean where they'd certainly been interested. So I was a little bit surprised when he turned up at Forest, although I shouldn't have been because, of course, they sign every player nowadays, don't they? So every player goes to Forest. Um, Danilo is 21. He's a holding midfielder or a central midfielder, but plays quite deep. He's already won a Brazilian Serie A title and he's played the equivalent of equivalent of two full seasons in his homeland in senior football. And Brazilian football is tough. It's tough. 
it's really difficult on the body. So he's he's a tough player. His conditioning is is very very strong, and I think what I see from Danilo is, physically speaking, I would have expected a box to box player, because I look at his frame and he looks very equipped for a modern box to box role. But he's not really, I don't think, that player. He's got a lot of comf- comfort when he drops in deep. And he likes to receive the ball off the centre-backs and, and progress play and move it around. He's not like a massively ambitious passer or anything like that, but he will drop in and he will take it under pressure and he will move it forward. It's progressive, but it's not glamorous. It's just, it's it's pretty basic, effective stuff. And that's fine. That's fine. Now you can see him when he when he starts to open up and when he, when he nips around in midfield and, and gets into duels that he is very athletic. So that's kind of why I thought maybe box to box. But actually, more importantly, is that he he does read defensive situations very, very well. I think he's a smart player. Positionally, I think he reads things. He seems to get himself into the right kind of areas most of the time. So this is how he's ended up as a kind of patrolling, recycling presence. And I think he'll probably play that kind of role for most managers in career because his instincts, his instincts are really strong. He does read the game very, very well. Keeps it simple on the ball. Pretty good, pretty effective player. I'd say... As a left-footed player, deep receiving possession, comfort on the ball. There's elements of Moises Caicedo to him um, as a left-footed, kind of a left-footed version of Caicedo, but he's nowhere near as, nowhere near as smooth. That would be the problem. Um, nowhere near as smooth. But I'd say that there are elements of Caicedo to him. Technically, though, the big challenge is him stepping up a level to the Premier League. I don't really know how it's going to go. But as John's been saying, this is the risk a team like Forrest need to take. Yeah, I think this is a, a, a really cool signing in, in many ways. And, and actually, it came a little bit out of the blue, as you said at the top there, Sam. Uh, John, Nick Miller wrote a brilliant piece on The Athletic about this. And it was titled, Danilo is Forrest's 24th signing this season and might yet be the most exciting. And there's some pretty stirring words from some big coaches in there. Vanderlei Luxemburgo, who brought him through. Ebel Ferreira, who is the current Palmeiras manager and who managed to you sort of really get the best out of him so far in his career. And there's a lot of praise going on. One of the things that, that Nick points out in that piece is that his instincts are always to play forwards when he can. And actually, it's something that I think Forrest have maybe lacked that urgency a little bit at times this season. It feels like this is a player with, with a really high ceiling. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I haven't been watching Palmeiras much this season um, at all. I'll be honest. <laughs> I haven't watched them at all. Uh, but I did catch the the debut that, that Danilo had for for Forrest. And uh, yeah, I echo everything that, that Sam said. Um, he's one of these interesting players. Do you know who he reminded me of a little bit? And again, this is, this is a very loose analogy, but um, someone like Bruno Guimaraes, in terms of the sort of expectations that they that that are on him to to do the things that he does, right? He's not a particularly big defensive presence, but he's going to be there as a pivot player to pick the ball up and move it move it forward and dictate the play to a degree. And it's in, it's interesting hearing Sam saying he feels like he should be more of a box to box player. Um, and again, that's the, the big the big debate that is going on amongst Newcastle fans at the moment is like where where's the eventual landing place of Bruno Guimaraes in this system? Is he going to sit in that deeper spot, or is he destined to be one of the, the further forward eights? But I, I also echo what Sam's saying in terms of he doesn't he doesn't feel quite like that that position would suit him either. So it's it's a it's an interesting 
kind of role, I think, because it's one of these things we have now where it's a it's a pivot player who um, is playing in a team where you would might you might normally expect a defensive midfielder or a bit more of a destroyer kind of player. Um, and so, yeah, that that would be my my sort of takeaway from this. I think everything that Sam said about him in, in possession is true. I think he's really good on the ball. He has good instincts. He's really good. Press resistance is is fine. Um, really neat and tidy. And that's what you need in, in this sort of position. And it's, as Sam said, it's exactly what Forrest needed. They needed someone who was going to be able to link up in that midfield area um, and, and help Forrest move the ball down the field. They don't want to just be a really high transition team. They need someone who does have the, those those tempo instincts in, in the middle. But I, I suppose the big query that I had was that like it came to th- that when the ball's going in the other direction, right? And particularly in the air, because um, he's not a, a particularly tall dude. He's not particularly um, well built. And so there was a few times when, when the ball came in aerially um, and he was running backwards and it felt like he was uh, just a little bit off the pace. I don't know, again, whether or not that's a league thing. Um, but yeah, I echo, I echo everything Sam's saying. It's, it, this is going to be a really interesting one to see how it, how it plays out. Because I think if these sorts of signings start working out directly from, from the Brazilian league, then that's a whole market of players that are, one, available much more easily now because um, the Copa Libertadores counts quite highly in the GBE uh, ranking system for points. So there's a lot of players out there who you can start picking up in South America. Uh, they qualify on points, and if if you can get them uh, making that step up, then it's then it works. But this, is, this has always been the unwritten rule of, of I think, European high-level players scouting is be careful with South America because it's hard to make that that step up for a number of reasons not just not just because of the football but because of the culture as well which is why you get a lot of Brazilian players coming via Portugal and that, that's the obvious mm. move to make or you get um, other South American players coming in through through Spanish-speaking countries etc there is a bit more of a cultural overlap there and it's a nice stepping stone in terms of the 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 level of football as well so yeah this is I think one of those direct results of Brexit and if it starts working out then I think we'll start seeing a steady stream of players coming from those kind of markets yeah I think something that's in his favor here Sam is the fact that he's coming into a midfield that look, Forest haven't been setting the world alight this season, but it does feel that their midfield is starting to find a bit of a rhythm. He's coming in, you know, alongside Remo Freuler, who, who really does feel like he's adapted to the Premier League now and is starting to put together a good run of form. He's got uh, Oro Mangala in there, who, who will probably cover the other side. He's came in for Ryan Yates on the on the kind of right side of that midfield three for his debut, made that 45 minutes and and did all right. A good so one, yeah. He, he's coming in alongside some players, whilst they might be new to the league, who have already found a little bit of a rhythm and there are options in there for Nottingham Forest that mean that he can kind of make these steps tentatively because it's, you know, with a lot of hype around him, it's easy to forget he is 21 years old. Yeah, for sure. Always nice to be able to slot in next to Remo, Remo Freuler, who's been playing for 45 years now. Um, it's... <laughs> It's an interesting, John. So you watched the the second half of the the Forest Bournemouth game, as did I. And uh, I don't know if you heard about halfway through the second half. Obviously, Danilo came on in the second half. The co-commentator that I had was Gary Bertels, who is the most negative person on the planet. And even he found room to praise Danilo, although he did it unwittingly. It was interesting. He said about halfway through the second half, he said, "It's weird. All of a sudden, Forest are winning all the second balls in midfield." I was like, yes, because Danilo's on the pitch, man. 
But I don't think Bertels are quite twigged to that. It's just that Danilo, who is quite distinctive, by the way, with his bleach blonde hair at the moment, had just been rushing around and winning all the duels, second balls. And he's actually quite pivotal for the goal as well uh, as a second ball win leading up to it. Um, I'm very interested to see how this one plays out. And you can see in when he's zipping around and winning those duels, that's where I saw the athleticism. But then when he drops back and recycles, that's a really valuable skill set too. I think the Bruno Guimaraes comparison, it's just he's just not a pass master is he? So it doesn't quite hold. And the Caicedo one doesn't quite hold either as well, because he's not quite technically smooth enough to really be considered like that. But he's somewhere in this area. We're struggling to find it, but he's somewhere in there. A second ball machine. You're telling me he's the Brazilian Harrison Reed. basically (laughs) what we're getting out here. And, And on that, I think we should move on to number two. Okay. Number two coming in at around 20 million is Dango Watara who has joined Bournemouth from Lorient. 20-year-old Burkina Faso winger. He's already made his debut. He's already got his first assist. He's played against Danilo. These two have collided. Um, He's left-footed, but can use both. Love it. Absolutely love a bit of uh, dual-footedness. He scored a few with his head as well. Very nice, very nice. You look at all of his goals and you look at the t- and the shots that he's taking over at Lorient and he really strikes you as one of those wingers who wants to get into the box, really wants to head towards the goal at any opportunity, which sounds really obvious, but it was only on Monday in the post box where we were talking about how Anthony doesn't really want to do any of that. So there are different types of wingers. Some of them feel more like strikers or wide forwards. Some of them feel much more like wingers and Watara is someone that wants to get into the box, wants to be that second or third run, the back post presence. He wants to combine. He wants to get in there and, and get it done. And his, his metrics, you know, in terms of shooting, his XG, his XA, they're all pretty strong. It does look pretty sustainable. As, and he looks like someone who can consistently offer you that threat, which if you're down in that relegation zone, good grief, it's something you need. He's also a very good close control dribbler. And I did notice as well, that he can shuffle and jink his way out of play and out of out of congestion really nicely. The problem is that he's often the one, he's often the reason why he's actually in that trouble to start with because he runs into danger. But the good news is he can run back out of it. So 50% of it's good and we'll work on the other 50%. And John made a, a comment earlier about how we're talking about and this the style of player here. When we're talking about Christensen, who will put in the hard yards off the ball, who will track back. And Watterer is someone that strikes me as someone who will really work to protect his fullback. He does put those yards in, and that does impress me as well. I don't have any big hot takes for him or any predictions. I just think he's a good player, and that is a start. Yeah, I mean, John, Bournemouth have arguably been lacking spark generally throughout this season, and and I think probably for a, for a few years now, generally it, it's an, an interesting dynamic well this is it this is what i was going to get at. you know they haven't had a, a player that's really set this fan base on fire i don't think especially in the premier league context since dan juma left and so when you when you actually look at this team and and the way that they play obviously Kiefer moore is is that kind of main battering ram up front they've been playing ryan christie off him in in this sort of lopsided 4-4-2 kind of shape and then it, you you get a what Sam was saying out there with, with Watara trying to get into the box and actually make things happen. That's something that the Bournemouth feel like they needed. And the kind of player that can put fans on the edge of their seat. I, I know that we're talking in really, really obvious cliches here. 
does feel a little bit like Bournemouth, who who felt like they were kind of just sliding back into the mire after a, a, a decent first half of the season, considering most people had them written down as rock-solid relegation candidates. It just feels like the kind of thing that maybe gives the club a little bit of a lift. Yeah, and it's a really sensible transfer in that sense, Whee! right? They've taken a player who's... Two folk, two folk. They've brought in a, a player who is you know, approaching a level that is good enough to get a move higher um, in a system that is very similar to the one that they're already playing in. Um, so far, I think he's got about six goals in in um, Liga yeah. um, from 18 appearances, something like that, um, which is a really good rate of return for a wide player in a 4-4-2 because uh, he is playing very much like a sort of classic winger. It was, it was quite fun watching him play this morning because it was like watching football from a few years back. Um, this is a guy who's going to start from a little bit deeper and get try and get isolated 1v1 against a fullback and then try and hit the byline and cross the ball back across. And there's a few assists he's had already this season which have come from that very thing. Um, and we seeing the, the his first game against Forest for Bournemouth, he was doing those kind of movements as well. So just a very sort of sensible transfer for a club who maybe want to have a step up in terms of the quality that their players that they have available in certain positions without really having to rip up the copybook in terms of what they're trying to do tactically. Um, and yeah, echo what Sam said about the willingness of Watara of to, to get back and help out as well. I mean, that's one of the biggest developments I think we've seen tactically in the last couple of seasons in particular is that teams are much happier to press out from the central midfield areas in high presses than in the wide areas because they don't want to give up um, the, the double coverage that they can get on opposition wide players in, in the fullback areas. So he'll be another great uh, addition in that respect. He will help out his fullback in those defensive moments and drops back in those transitional um, scenarios as well. So yeah, again, with Sam, I'm interested to see how this one turns out because these are the sorts of players that you want teams at the bottom of the Premier League to be bringing into the league rather than the, the tired out old cliche players who who you're like, well, they did a job for X, Y, or Z. Let's see if they can do it for Bournemouth and keep them up. This is actually forward-thinking stuff, and it's smart transfer work as I, as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, Sam, this is a player that's come in from Lorient, who have been one of the success stories, I think, of the season in France so far. And it's obviously a young team with a lot of talent. Watero uh, is is the first to go, but you'd imagine that he won't be the last. There's already interest in, in Enzo Lefay, who's having a good season. Tara Moffi's been linked with Aston Villa, with West Ham. Southampton. It's a, it's a very... It's a very good side, uh, one that I like a lot, and and they've been they've been loads of fun. Uh, these are the kind of things, and this is one of the the issues that I think European football faces in that the Premier League has the the pulling power to pull, you know, a, a player like this from a team who are flying at the top of, of Liga, having a kind of historically good season up there and to the bottom of the Premier League and and whether that's a you know a good or a bad thing generally, I, I think is not this is not the place to discuss it, but. It's interesting to see a player make that jump and and try and make that move. Well, look, man, it's it's all Premier League spending this window, isn't it? Ultimately, um, the figures yeah. are. I mean, look, obviously Chelsea have had a big, quite well, quite a massive hand in this. But even if you remove Chelsea spending from the pots, you compare the top five, six European leagues, and you look at what they're spending. The Premier League is once again dwarfing every other uh, every other league. I mean, I would have loved to include some transfers from some of the other teams but they really just aren't that many at all that have actually happened or they're all quite cheap or they're all emergency loans no other league is in a position 
to be able to go and offer Lorient 20 million for a 20 year old who's had a really good half season. Just, just can't do it. Just absolutely can't do it at all. And like watching Watara and watching his clips through again to to refresh, I was actually struck by the fact that I didn't realise it, but I'd already seen him at the Africa Cup of Nations. Yeah, he um, scored that really, really brilliant goal yeah. that sent Burkina Faso through to the quarterfinals. I'm gonna say. Yeah, he he and he was up. He was he was do, doing the business with Bertrand Traore up top for Burkina Faso, and I was like, did he score and then get sent off in the quarters? Actually, against Tunisia. Oh, I don't I don't know if he got sent off, but uh, yeah, he he was he was very impactful for them as well. And that Africa Cup of Nations football can feel a little bit old school like John was referencing, like it can feel a bit like traditional wing play, quite direct, a lot of bursts. And he was absolutely nailing it. I just sort of remembered that I'd seen it all before. So the progression into Liga, predictable, great goals and assists record first half of the season, six and five from 18 starts. <laughs> and he gets to, and he gets the move. Um, as John said, it's, it's probably the right sort of deal that a, a team like Bournemouth should be making because 20 million, they can afford it. And hopefully he keeps them up. He's 20, so he's got lots of resale value, lots of room to grow. Uh, just rather than turn to the old guard, take a look at someone like Watara, who has everything to prove and everything to gain. Well, if his debut is anything to go by, then Bournemouth fans are in for a bit of a treat. Um, but with that, I think we should move to our final player, Sam. Yeah, so the final player is Jorginho Rutter. Hoffenheim to Leeds for a fee that looks like it can rise to as high as about 35, 36 million pounds. It's a big one. I don't really know much about Rutter, so we're lucky that John's here. And I'm going to pass the baton straight to John. John, please enlighten us. <laughs> well, I'm going to start off by correcting your pronunciation. Go on then. Which is annoying, but I guess it's good to get on these things early enough. But uh, yeah, I would say Jorginho Ruter. Uh, so it's, Ooh, the, the U is long Ruter. and it's a French name. So, um, and, and that's where he's from. Very, from a place very close to Ilan Melier, which the Leeds media have been making a lot about because apparently conversations between Melier and, and Ruter have, have been taking place behind the scenes in order to get this one through I don't, I don't know i don't ever know how much those sorts of things are impactful but but here we are but uh, yeah ruta joined the the bundesliga a couple of seasons ago now from Rennes in in liga um interestingly enough made his debut replacing eduardo camavinga um at Rennes, but didn't stay there for very long. Very quickly was moved by Hoffenheim. Um, they recognised that he had a lot that they liked, and they, and they moved him very quickly into the league, which is a fairly unusual, I suppose, for for a Bundesliga team moving in the French market. But but here we are. And his first season, I think, was very exciting. I think he he did a lot of fun things and got noticed by a lot of people um, for Hoffenheim. That was the season before this season. This season, he's come in, and I think being a little bit he's sort of a second season syndrome a little bit, being a little bit more workmanlike, um, not had quite so many uh, highlight reel clips. Uh, and so maybe has gone under the radar a little bit. There was a period, I think, in his first season where everyone was talking about him as being the next big thing. Um, but yeah, uh, Hoffenheim, he was playing in a, in a two-man forward line. Um, I know scouts for some clubs who have talked to me about him and they've suggested that he might be better in wider areas. But I did see in his interview for the sort of announcement interview for the club, he was saying that he likes to play through the middle, but he can do a job in wide areas as well. Did he please, please um, tell me he actually used the phrase do a job? Because that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
very much, very much didn't say Aww. that, um, but that was how it was. It was communicated. <laughs> but uh, yeah, played played for for Hoffenheim as as one of those two two strikers, but doesn't have a huge goal return. I think he only has two goals this season for Hoffenheim, um, which is I, I suppose a little bit under low numbers for one of a two strike pair partnership for a team who are sort of comfortably upper mid table. Um, well, upper mid, yeah, upper mid table is the right way of saying it, I think, in the Bundesliga right now. So this has been something that has uh, been raised as a question by Leeds fans because Leeds were looking, I think, or Leeds fans certainly were looking for a Patrick Bamford backup because Bamford's injury woes have been uh, well documented. Um, but I don't think that Rutea is going to be that kind of player. Um, what I do think he is, is a really good reader of space. So when I've watched back a lot of his clips this season, he's really good at finding space in between um, back back lines, centre backs. He can drop off and play um, almost almost like that wide forward that we were talking about before in that forward line. Uh, he's a very rapid player, uh, can get in behind. But actually, I've been a little bit disappointed in terms of his ability to get separation from centre backs in the Bundesliga. Um, the Bundesliga is a league where there is a lot of space anyway, relative to the other top five leagues. Um, and it's it's kind of fascinating watching him play because he does seem to get into really good positions where you think he's going to get a good chance on goal here. Like he's found space, he he's lost his marker, the ball has come through, it's a good ball, but. Always, the the centre back seems to just get back and 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 smother the the chance as well. So, interested to see how he um, adapts to the Premier Premier League in that respect. Um, and yeah, interesting to see how he gets played at the moment. Leeds United, in terms of the formations that they're playing, are a little bit up in the air. I think we're we're arguably in end of days Jesse Marsh era, and end of days Jesse Marsh era always comes with a lot of uh, formation rotation. Um, Obviously, the the preferred formations are, have have been a sort of four triple two, the sort of classic Red Bull um, approach. But they they can also play. They've been playing a bit more of a four three three recently, or a four 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 two diamond, however you want to uh, label it as well. Um, and Leeds do have like quite a a, a, a surfeit of of players to play in the forward places at the moment as well, which raises a lot of questions about where Rutter's got to fit in. So I don't have a huge amount of insight really as to how this is going to go or or how it will work um this is one of those signings i think where you look at it and think it's good that we have a good player at the club but in this system it's hard to see how it works but is this system forever who knows um so it's one of those ones where i'm kind of like yeah it's 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 great to have this kind of signing but the big question is you know when you're dropping a record transfer fee on a player like this and it's unclear as to where they're fitting in in your system it's probably not the best kind of transfer to be making. Yeah, it's weird. Leeds have really hedged their bets this window, haven't they? They've signed arguably the most Jesse Marsh player of all time in Maxi Verber, who is like a Red Bull through and through. Um, and they've also signed someone who it feels like they've paid no regard to Jesse Marsh whatsoever on in return. Yeah. They've kind of gone both ways. I mean, obviously, if you're trying to run a club sustainably and and you're trying to you're trying to do an overarching development scheme, then you can't be that worried about whether or not Jesse Marsh wants to use Rutter, particularly if you're not that sure that Jesse Marsh is going to be around for that much longer. But this was a big fee. Um, one thing I'd probably add is that he does feel very two-footed. Um, the ball striking seems very good off both feet. He scored some absolute beauties with his left. Uh, sort of acute angled from from outside the box, top corner. It, the sort of thing where you scream, it that stayed hit 
that sort that sort of strike. He can score some really genuinely spectacular goals. Um and I think that that's definitely worth noting because I criticized John Duran for being super one-footed. Mm. Ruter does not have that problem whatsoever and that feels like an immediate plus. There's certainly an athleticism there as well which I think is worth saying. Mm. Uh, Jesse Marsh will be able to use him. He's going to be good in terms of like his ability to press out, etc. Um, but coming back to what I was saying about space as well, the big question is going to be like, how good is he going to look in a system where, which is all about re- reducing space, compacting, compacting the middle, making sure that oppositions can't build through you, and then counterattacking when you win the ball back into. Oftentimes, or even when you're doing direct attacking, you're di- attacking through the middle through really congested central areas. What impact is that going to have on the way that he's playing? Because that's very different to the role that he's been playing at Hoffenheim. Yeah, I would just add that there, there's something that's given me bad vibes about this transfer for ages, and I've worked out what it is in the midst of what you were saying, John. It's that Leeds signing a young French forward for a big fee from a Bundesliga <laughs> club who can play through the middle oh, but no. also plays a bit wide <laughs> is giving me big Jean-Kevin Augustin vibes. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I don't think it, would, it could go as, as badly as that, that one went because he never actually ended up really playing for the club, right? And then we ended up not actually owning him at the end of it despite having to pay the 20 million or whatever it was fee. Um, so surely it can't go as badly as that. But yeah, I think this is the, the interesting thing about this is that Victor Orta, there seems to be like lots of things going on in the Leeds transfer model at the moment. One of them is buying young players in who are who are going to develop time. One of them is buying in ex Jesse Jesse Marsh players, um, and then the other one is almost like Victor Orta is trying to gamify the transfer market a bit. And I think Ruter fits into that sort of category, which is here's a player that has got a lot of like potentially a really high ceiling um, and could be worth a lot of money in the future. Um, similar to someone like Rafinha. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that's a bad thing because, you know, some of these players are going to come in and be moments players. We've already seen what Willie Nonto's doing at, at Leeds this season. Mm. But the big question for me is going to be, one, if you're paying £35 million for a player, you, you're going to have to get a big old fee to make that worthwhile. Uh, and the other one is is that it doesn't feel to me like Ruter is a, a moments guy, really. Um He's obviously, as Sam said, he can score spectacular goals, but it doesn't feel like he's the sort of player, which is what Leeds need at the moment to generate chances, which is picking up the ball in the midfield area, doing three players and then scoring. Um, so what sort of impact is that going to have? It's, it's not good enough just to have players who in a good system are going to be great and have a high ceiling. You need to have the rest of those players there to bring out the best in them as well. And that's where things are a little bit more up in the air at Leeds at the moment. Yeah, I think I think that makes plenty of sense. Um, and and but it's an exciting transfer, but I think one with with a lot of caveats still attached to it at this point. Uh, and on that bombshell, I think we should probably call this main segment to an end. We will see you in part three. Welcome back to part three of the Ranks FC podcast. And a little treat for you here off the bench for a brief cameo. It's Dean Jones with Melon and Shoutout of the Week. It's time for Melon of the Week. This week's Melon of the Week is Wolves goalkeeper Jose Saar. Oh, what a nightmare. What was he doing? The pass out of his box. He's already 2-0 down against Manchester City. He's seen a pass, but he couldn't play the pass. He's kicked the ball straight to Riyad Mahrez, about four yards away from him, who cannot believe his luck as he just intercepts the ball. And then, of course, he just tees up Holland 
to complete the hat-trick. Easiest way he'll ever complete a hat-trick in his life. The Wolves goalkeeper not having a great time of things at the moment. The poor, poor lad. I'm afraid, though. I can't spare him. He is the melon of the week. And that leads me on to shout-out of the week, too. So... Um, continue to get your reviews in, people. Um, I am enjoying them a lot, and they are making an impact. I'm sure they are. Um, and this week's comes from Liam. This is shout-out of the week, and it's to Liam, um, a rank squad member in Galway. So that's good. Maybe he's one of Jack's mates. Um, he says, the one and only podcast that is definitive. It is a rare thing for a football podcast to have such a perfect blend of creativity and charisma brought to life by hosts with great chemistry and an unmatched level of ball knowledge. I love that. Uh, BR Football Ranks and now Ranks FC has really encouraged me to broaden my horizons and delve into the European leagues and keep a keen eye out for rising players around the world. I am very grateful for the lads' enthusiasm and efforts in producing such an enjoyable and insightful podcast. Like That is a legit great review. Thank you, Liam. Hopefully people, like when they do check our reviews, see that like, Oh, these guys know their stuff. They have ball knowledge. Um, shouts out to all of the rank squad. Keep the reviews coming in. Um, and at the very least, tell your mates to come and have a listen. Thank you very much to Mr. Dean Jones. And with that, Sam. That's the gibberish alarm. Mm. John, what's it like to hear it in real life? Live. Well, his noise gate completely killed it for me so i didn't hear any of it so i'm gonna to have to listen back to the the recording Jack, you gotta do it again <laughs> no, we're not doing that again i haven't got the gap no 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 fair enough all right well look uh gibberish this week it's gonna be quite heartwarming i think it's gonna be a nice uh nostalgic dive this weekend sunday specifically i went to my parents house for a sunday lunch and they loaded my car with boxes of my childhood stuff for the way back they'd done one of those classic garage clear outs and they wanted to hand off all my crap stuff that they've been keeping for genuinely about 20 years it's 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 quite cute and there was actually a remarkable amount of old school kind of football memorabilia in there and i had a really nice time getting home and sifting through it all so i thought i'd make a little ranking of the best things that i found it should be quite nice okay let's hear it okay number three is a 1998 world cup coin collection John, do you remember this from Sainsbury's, the supermarket? I have got this myself. You, I remember faithfully collecting them. Do you have a full set? Somewhere, yes, I believe so. With a few extras as well. Ooh, spares, like well, it. Spares. I even have the promotional um, cardboard thing that you push them in. I don't know if you've yes, got I've that. Yes, I've got that too, 100%. Uh, so I, I, I pulled it out of the bin bag. Uh, for those that don't know, this is kind of like a classic sticker book, but... Th- imagine like little silver coins have replaced the stickers and you've got a cardboard kind of page that you can sink the coins into it was sponsored by sainsbury's which is a supermarket here they were like the official partner for the england's tournament or something i'm not i'm not really sure i seem to remember getting them at petrol stations when my dad filled up you got them from fuel Mm. i think they were were twinned with esso as well so esso garages if you put in a certain amount of money into your car you got a coin given and yeah that, and that's how you got and it, it was a bit of a lucky dip as well you couldn't just walk in and ask for alan shearer like you just got like whatever you were given so it had that same kind of loot box element to a panini sticker pack um but it was really cool to see i pulled it out and i immediately opened the page and there were six coins missing and i thought oh this is 
bloody worthless. What the hell have I done? But I found the six loose coins at the bottom of the bag. So I was able to actually put them back in myself. So I felt like I was completing the set over and over again. It was it was really nice. But what a team we had, mate. Shearer, Owen, Bex, uh, Paul. Darren Anderson. Yeah, one of these is not like the others. <laughs> uh, Sol Campbell, Seaman, Ince. You know, it was absolutely awesome. So yeah, found that and that, that really was quite nice. Um, at number two, my autograph book from back when I was six or seven. And specifically, it's full of Chelsea player signatures from one of my trips to Stamford Bridge. I'm not quite sure how he got this, but my dad managed to get us like hospitality tickets or something like that to a Chelsea game in 1996. And um, we actually were in the players' lounge before the game while all of the players were eating lunch. So they're having a team meal at the stadium. The manager was Rude Hullet. And all all sorts of players were gathered around, and my dad said, "Go and take the." Uh... Bear in mind, I'm a very cute six year old here. I, it's 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 adorable stuff. What do you mean? Uh, you were almost certainly like six foot two already. You were taller than you the players. You caused small when they children out. to cry just <laughs> exactly. by walking into a room. We know. <laughs> I sort of waddled over, and they were. Dad's like, go, "Go and ask them all for the go and ask for the you know the autograph." So I, I sort of walk up to the table. It's a so like a long oblong table. Imagine like the, the head table at a wedding style. And they're all gathered around and I walk up to each one and they're in the middle of eating lunch, all of them, knives and forks in hand. And they all have to put their fork, knives and fork down and, and say hello to me and and they all sign it. And there's a couple I can't really identify in there, but I've got Hullet who really put up a fuss, but I got him in the end. Um, Dennis Wise, Michael Dubry, Zola, Viali, uh, Kevin Hitchcock, Roberto Di Matteo and, and Peter Osgood as well. Really, really cool. There is one autograph that is not in the book that should have been there though. Jack, I think you may have heard this story, but John, you certainly won't have. A, another person walked through the entrance door as I was collecting autographs, and my dad went like silently ballistic. He was motioning at me fiercely and, and wildly, like, Sam, you have to you have to go and get his autograph. You have to go and get his autograph. And I was like, I didn't know who it was. I'm six, right? No idea. And in the blink of an eye, before I've even really steadied myself to go over and ask for this autograph, the person has left. He's, he's walked up to the entrance of the room. He's looked in. And he's gone. And later I find out that that person is Diego Maradona. And my window to get his autograph was about 10 seconds. And I, a clueless six-year-old, was just too slow. Too slow off the mark. And I missed a once-in-the-lifetime opportunity. What a shame. That is sad. Yeah. That is very, very sad. I know. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what's going to top this because that's a pretty cool That's a pretty cool number two. It is cool. But I, I, what I actually found the most interesting, and it is obviously, you know, it's it's my my ranking, and I, I I took the most joy from looking through the stack of old match day programs that I'd accumulated. Um, particularly interesting to me, I would imagine, because I currently contribute to a match day program, Southamptons, and I think it's fair to say we've come a long, long way in graphic design and layout because these things, I've got I've got programs from Coventry City, QPR. Aston Villa, Chelsea, Arsenal, Everton, all sorts from 96, 97, 98. They are terrible. Absolutely god-awful. Like, it's about 70% adverts, but not clever adverts, like the way we do them, where we disguise them as other things. Like It's, like mo- it's just like garages nearby. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's just funeral care, stuff like that. It's ridiculous. That's about 70% of the program. 20% of it is word art and fonts and squished pictures. There's a picture of um, Gary McAllister in the Coventry one. And you know when you just take an image and you just squish it in half and it it squeezes the body and the head and makes it look really long? They've just done that to Gary. 
it's an absolute murder. It's terrible. Um, but there was a really cool little thing, actually. I've got the Arsenal-Everton programme from January 19th, 1997, and there's a foreword in it from Arsene Wenger. And halfway through it, he writes, I'm very pleased that we are to sign Nicholas Anelka. He will be 18 in March, and I believe he will be one of the biggest talents of his age in Europe. He's a very gifted striker and a very exciting prospect. We're looking forward to seeing him. Just stumbling across little things like that was really, really nice because obviously several decades on, Anelka won the Premier League title with, with Arsenal. Won it with Chelsea too, FA Cups, Champions League with Real Madrid, won the Euros. I mean, he was one hell of a player. But just bear in mind, John, that you and I spend a lot of time watching a lot of video, doing a lot of scouting, and we are helped by all the technology in the world. And Arsene Wenger was out there in the mid-90s identifying talent, and he had it tough, mate. He had it real tough, but he nailed it so many times. And just to see that that little note there to say, Anelka's joining us. He's 17. I really hope he's going to be quite good. Amazing. <laughs> it's mad to think that they did it by tape back then. Can you imagine? Like it's so easy to just re re click back on a on a clip and be like, oh, I'd like to see that. Yeah. Imagine if every time you did that, you had to press the button. It was like <laughs> and then play again. And if you did it too much, this the tape could just snap at any moment, and that was it. You weren't going to get anything else. Yeah. Yep, nightmare. <laughs> Terrifying. Terrifying. Scouting, scouting has come a long way. I mean, football's come a long way. But uh, Nicola Anelka being announced in the Arsenal programme is is quite interesting. No, obviously, they weren't announcing him on Twitter back then with a well-nice video mm-hmm. in, in the new shirt. Just getting a, a little clip in the in the programme. That's the bit. Um, right. With that, I think it's probably time that we call this episode a day. But all that's left for me to do is say thank you so much to Mr. John McKenzie for joining us. John, it's always a real pleasure. Do you want to remind everyone where they can find you? I don't know if I want to do this because at the moment I've got Manchester United fans mad at my <laughs> takes on Casemiro in my mentions. And yeah, every day is a new is a new uh, grudge with another fan base. But you can find me on Twitter at John underscore McKenzie. And uh, yeah, do check out my videos on TIFO IRL YouTube channel. That's where you can probably get the, the best viewing of them. Yeah, absolutely wonderful channel. And we couldn't recommend it enough. Uh, thank you so much, of course, to the rank of Mr. Samtai. Cheers, buddy. Uh, thank you to Dean Jones for his wonderful little cameo appearance as well. I've been Jack Collins, Neighbor Parts. This has been Ranks FC. Thank you so much for listening as ever. And we'll see you next week. Take it easy, gang. Peace.